0: This is the uh, ninth in the series new beginnings and i've entitled it red letter christians today i would like to simply read a number of passages make one or two comments and throw in some questions because i'm hoping that it will be a time for personal reflection on where we are in our pursuit of god the first thing to do is to ask this question do you think that jesus meant what he said let me ask that again do do you actually believe that jesus meant the things that he was saying right with that in our minds let's start with psalm 42 it says this in the beginning psalm 42 verse 1 and 2 as the deer pants for streams of water So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Now the imagery is clear. In the land of Israel where all the mountains and the valleys, there's desert places, there are incredibly dry periods, and when there's dry periods, there's only water at certain places, and there's the image of the deer who pants to get to the next waterhole and He says, "My soul pants for you, O God." My question is this: Does my soul does your soul pant for God? Are we that thirsty is Do we thirst for the living God? Where can I go to meet God is what the psalmist is saying, and I'm asking. Are we like that? Psalm 63 is similar, and David writes this. At the beginning it says, O God, you are my God, I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now there can be no question that in life it often feels like a dry and weary land, but are we like David? Can we say, God, you are my God, I earnestly seek you? for you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. Or as the message says, I've worked up such a hunger and a thirst for God traveling across these dry and weary deserts. In a similar vein, Jesus has seated the huge crowd down on the hillside and he begins to talk to them in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew. And he starts with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he continues in that vein in verse 6. He gets to, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so the question constantly for us as Christians, many of us who have been on the road for a long time, do we constantly have, do we still have, that hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or have we become comfortable maybe even jaded. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. And even as you go all the way through the New Testament to the book of Revelation in chapter 21, it says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And again in chapter 22. In fact, it's almost right at the end of what we call our New Testament. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Again, this powerful imagery of the fact that those who are thirsty, those who hunger and thirst, will be satisfied. And as you read through John's gospel, for example, there's the Samaritan woman who comes to draw water and Jesus asks her for a drink. And in the exchange, it gets to a place where she says, well, you can give me this water. And he says, if you drink the water from the well, you'll thirst again. But the water that I'm going to give you will satisfy your thirst. Or in chapter six, where he, I think three or four times, he says, I am the bread of life in such a way that they get the understanding that the disciples, that that, that they're going to have to eat this bread, but it confuses them because how do they do that? Do we hunger and thirst for God? Do we pant for God like the deer pants for water? In another way also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's saying the same thing. That's the focal point of what we are supposed to be doing. Luke 11, uh, sorry, Luke 10 is very interesting. Um, there is the exchange with one of the teachers of the law. And he says to him, says to Jesus, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he says, You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Now do this and you will live. We've heard that so many times, but today I want to lay the emphasis on this. It's the all part of it that I want to just stress. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And it's interesting that as... This is written in this particular way. It, 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 it's reiterated. It doesn't just say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. There is the, the repetitive, and with all. So, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Do this, and you will live. Can we say that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart with all of our strength with all of our mind with all of our soul it's a real question because we get into the rhythm of life and it's so easy to just meander through and one week blends into the next I'm wanting to challenge myself and all of us to say do we long for God? are we willing to love him with all of our very being. It's like a little bit further on in Luke 11, where um, it's talking about um, prayer, Jesus is talking about prayer, and he's done the thing where he's taught the disciples what we call um, the Lord's Prayer. But he he seamlessly moves into talking about prayer, and he talks about, in verse 9, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. And we've said so many times that, that the asking, the seeking, the knocking is in the present continuous tense, imperative in the Greek. Which means it's ask and keep on asking, don't ever stop. It's seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. Don't be satisfied until you get the answer. And he goes on to say what he's talking about there is, how will God not give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? And there's the sense of how much have we stopped asking, stopped seeking, stopped knocking, and become satisfied with where we are. I hesitated to to put this bit in, but I think it's worth it because in Matthew 19 there's a young man who comes to Jesus and he's clearly wealthy and there's an exchange that takes place between them and he's fairly self-righteous about the way he's been able to keep the law and um, he says, I've done all the things that are necessary and required of me and Jesus says, well, here's what you haven't done if you wish to me uh, complete, or go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, come off, come and follow me. And there is this grappling with it and then turning away as this young man walks away from Jesus and the disciples. And, and then Jesus says to turns to his disciples and he says this, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, when this confrontation or this exchange happens with a rich young man, Jesus follows it up and he says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's twice in two verses he reiterates the whole thing. And we could look at that and say, well, we, you know, it's not us. But in truth, all of us in this congregation are rich. We're probably in the top 10% wealthy people in the world. And the point about it is that there is so much for us that we can do, that we have access to, that seeks our attention. It, for me, it looks a bit like the parable in uh, that Jesus has spoken a few chapters before this in chapter 13. We call it, the parable of the sower or the parable of the seeds. And essentially what's happened is that, that we hear all of this stuff so many times and the seed is sown in our heart um, and, and there's the pathway and there's all sorts of things happen to it. But does it come to fruitfulness? And I think that when we look at these verses of, of desire for God himself, that's exactly what this is all about. Paul, when he writes to the Philippian church, he says uh, some amazing things. And then there's this passage that I referred to a couple of weeks ago, but I want to just pick up on another aspect of it in chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3. He says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained it, already become perfect or mature complete, and here's the point. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He He's saying, I press forward. I'm not satisfied with where I am in the sense that there's more. There's, there's a lot more still to come. Brothers, I do not regard myself as lay, laying hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward for what lies ahead, this reaching forward, this stretching, struggling even, one of the translation puts, that we struggle forward, that we reach forward. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This word in Greek um, is I press. It's a it's a f- a following word. It's a hunting word. It's a word that you pursue the quarry until you catch it. And in essence, what Paul is saying is the same as all these passages we've looked at so far. This hunger, this thirst, this, this pressing on, this panting for God, this desire that we have, that all of our heart and mind and soul and strength are given over to this pursuit. And that we don't get caught in a whole raft of different things, but that we have a, a kind of a single-minded focus on the orientation of our lives. Let me come back to the question that I asked at the beginning. Do you think Jesus meant what he said? The reason for asking it is, if he did, what difference does it make then to how we live, how we behave, how we think, how we focus our lives, what we give our attention to? I entitled this Red Letter Christians because... When I first became a Christian a Christian my parents bought me a new Bible and it was known as a red letter edition all the words of Jesus were in red type and it was hard to read the gospels without these words jumping out at you and um almost accosting you off the page I think I know I need to regularly stop and say do I really believe that Jesus meant what he said. Because if he did, it has to have some impact. And if I do believe that, what difference does it make to the way that I behave and live and think? I want to suggest to all of us that we become red-letter Christians, that we look at the words of Jesus afresh, and we say, do we have a hunger and a thirst, a desire, a, 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 a real pressing into what Jesus said and what he did, that we make it real and relevant for the way that we believe and live and think now. See you on Sunday.